Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, we head to Chicago. How AstraZeneca and Daiichi's and HER2 data set a new standard in breast cancer. New modalities are giving HER3 another shot. And Simone sits down with FDA's Richard Pazder. We have Steve's prescription for fixing FDA advisory committee meetings. And Selena weighs in on the latest cut of ALS data from Biogen. All right, Lauren, you uh, have ASCO data up to the eyeballs, but we did have some really outstanding data over the weekend. Can you tell us what set these data from AstraZeneca and Daiichi apart? So the inher 2 data, this was in HER2 negative breast cancer patients previously treated, and it led to a doubling of progression-free survival. It's just huge because this is half of all breast cancer patients. And, you know, to add, to add that kind of a survival benefit is, uh, I don't know, I heard there was a standing ovation um, in the presentation room. So it was, it was a very exciting release. And it's big for the InHER2 program because HER2 has been such an important breast cancer target and, and other types of cancers. It's just been such an important target for so many years. But the drawback is that resistance generally can occur when you're targeting the HER2 signaling pathway. And this just shows that when you're using the ADC mechanism, which uses HER2 not only as a way to block the signaling pathway, but also as just a way to target a chemotherapy to any cell expressing HER2, it has some really, really interesting benefits. And this shows that the cells don't even need to express a lot of HER2 to to be able to get those benefits. You know, now this is a drug that could potentially be used in 70% of all breast cancer patients, anyone who has at least low HER2 expression. And based on the mechanism, not all of the cells need to express HER2 at all, right? Because there's a big bystander effect. Exactly. Yeah. So when I spoke with Daiichi this weekend, they explained why in HER2 has had such impressive results where other IDCs against the same target have not with these HER2 low cancers. And one of the reasons is that Breast cancers are very heterogeneic in HER2 expression. So some cells might have a lot, some might have a little bit, but as long as the ADC is getting the drug into some cells, it can then diffuse across the membrane and also kill cells that are very close by. Lauren, this has basically created this new category, right, of HER2 low. So it's not just HER2 positive, HER2 negative now, but you actually, to some degree, I think you argued redefining a a category of patients, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, so it was. It was previously HER2 positive patients were treated with therapies targeting HER2, and no therapies targeting HER2 have been effective in the HER2 low population, which is kind of a subset of what was previously considered HER2 negative. If this is approved for this indication, then patients will probably be classified differently now. Well, Gilead also had data, right, in HER2 negative or low, however we're calling now, patients, but they're overlapping and not the same. Do you want to talk a little bit about should these programs both progress and get to the market, like how they might compete, what place there might be for Gilead's therapy? Sure. 
so Gilead saw um, a statistically significant but much smaller benefit in progression-free survival. The, the patients in the treatment arm with Trodelvi, which is an ABC against the TROP2 target, which is you know, different than HER2, had one and a half months uh, increase in progression-free survival. I think it's still a big benefit for patients because the, the patient groups were not overlapping in these studies. The patient groups in the Trodelvi TROPICS2 study these were treated with more previous lines of chemotherapy. So they were sicker patients who are less likely to respond to anything in the first place. That was in HER2 negative. So HER2 negative breast cancers are defined by the standard immunohistochemistry assay that you use as something between zero and one plus. And then HER2 low is one plus and two plus. So these are overlapping populations, but there is still this HER2 negative population that we don't know if in HER2 works for those patients yet. But we know that Tridelvi does have some survival benefit. Now, Lauren, you spoke to uh, Mary Pinder Schenk, Daiichi's head of global medical affairs, and she told you the other ADCs in Daiichi's pipeline share many of the same design features that are behind this molecule's success. We're definitely going to be watching that pipeline and see how things evolve. Simone? Yeah, I, I just wanted to sort of take a meta look at this and say, you know, sometimes you might ask, why do we always hammer on about new modalities and things? And here's the reason. HER2 is the oldest, if not one of the oldest, if not the oldest sort of targeted therapy, certainly, you know, for biologics, one of the original breast cancer targets. And it's been around forever. And there's been so much research on it. You might think after all these years, is there still anything new to achieve with HER2? And I really feel like going in with new modalities in this way, I mean, ADC is probably the oldest of the new modalities in a way, but, but going in, it really shows there's just massive ground that can still be covered and improved upon with some of the biology that we already know and using new tools. So I think that's just incredibly exciting for oncology and probably for other areas. And so, you know, we can expect to see more from this and other diseases and really hats off to them for pursuing it and what worked out to be is a very strategically a very clever way. And that's something that we've been following for the last year and we had a story that was looking at all of the different new modalities against HER2 at last year's ESMO conference and it's really amazing to see the amount of work that's gone into this target and, and the amount of progress that is being made. Well staying with this theme as it turns out HER3 is having a moment as new modalities breathe life into this historically challenging target. Lauren, who are some of the players in this space? Well, the, the big data for HER3 that we saw this weekend also came from Daiichi, and it's one of those ADCs that has a lot of the same properties as in HER2. Um, they had petridumab, which is an ADC that uses the same chemotherapy, deruxtecan. And they tested this also in breast cancer, and in some other indications, but in breast cancer, one of the subsets of patients that they looked at was the HER2 negative. So this is potentially another option for this group of patients. And one of the benefits of that, that chemotherapy agent, right, is that it's usually not given to breast cancer patients, so they haven't seen it before. Exactly. It's a class of chemotherapies that breast cancer patients usually don't get, and it's very potent. So having it as an ADC that targets the tumor cells is a safety advantage. Lauren, what are some of the reasons mechanistically that explain why HER3 has been a more difficult target than HER2, which has seen his success historically? I think part of the reason there's been less development for HER3 is that 
its role in cancer was less understood than that of HER2. And part of the reason is because it does not have a very active kinase domain. So that's one of the reasons it wasn't targeted. And also one of the reasons that it's harder to develop drugs against it because it's more complicated than just blocking the kinase domain. So the way that HER3 contributes to cancer is by interacting with other receptor tyrosine kinases in the same family. And recently, it's been more understood that HER3 is involved in resistance to HER2-targeted therapies. And there's a reason that we want to target this, especially in patients who've been resistant to HER2-targeted therapies. Right. So if you're just using it as a hook on the cell, then you don't have to worry about the fact it doesn't have a kinase domain or whatever. Exactly. So HER3 interacts with a lot of different things, and it's hard to block all of those interactions at once with an antibody, which is why a lot of the HER3-targeted therapies have not done well in the past. But if you're not trying to block the signaling domains, if you're trying to just use it as a target and it's expressed on a lot of cancer cells, it looks like that might be a successful way to get at this target. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Simone, uh, so just this morning, you sat down with Richard Pazder at ASCO. Simone, what did you talk about? Well, let me clarify. It wasn't just Dr. Pazder. I also sat down with Mark Thierry and Paul Klutz, who are deputy directors of the Oncology Center of Excellence and two of Dr. Pazda's right-hand hand people, I should say. Very interesting conversation, covering a lot of ground. Um, and, you know, check into biocentury.com later. We'll, we'll have more on that. I think probably for me, one of the overriding messages coming out of this session was a huge focus by FDA on let's call it toxicity or tolerability, or rather preventing toxicity or tolerability. So FDA is concerned about this massive emphasis on finding the maximum tolerated dose that companies are generally fixated on what's the highest response rate they could get. But actually, the highest response rate can bring a lot of toxicity concerns. This, of course, came up with PI3 kinase, where the emphasis had really been on efficacy and once they were on the market, toxicities started to emerge, and some of those have been withdrawn from the market. And so what Dr. Pazza said is it has to be about the right dose. And he said, if you don't have the right dose, you are building a house on quicksand. I think it comes up in various ways. There was a thread through the conversation with patient-reported outcomes. And this, they said, you know, sponsors never come to us and say our drug isn't tolerable. But he says, you're not the ones to say if it's tolerable. Patients are the ones who will say whether the drug is tolerable. So I think sponsors can really expect to see a big drive now at FDA. There is something called Project Optimus, and we'll be writing more about this. As I said, check in with biocentury.com. But around the importance of focusing on tolerability, toxicity of compounds, and not just their efficacy in cancer. I've been covering FDA and, and Rick Pazder for about three decades. And one of the things that I've come to understand is that when he says that this is something that FDA would like, or that he thinks that this is something that's good, people that don't, that don't know FDA or, or aren't in the space for a long time might think, oh, that means this is just something that's optional. It's a nice to do or something like that. The graveyard of companies that have failed and of products that have failed that might actually have been a benefit because people misunderstood Dr. Pazder's comments as being something that is optional or, or nice to do is pretty big. So I think that it's important that he's talking about that. And I think that it's also 
you know, interesting and, and maybe important. I, I wonder if you've got any thoughts about that or if he addressed it, of the, the fact that it reflects the different paradigm between old-fashioned chemotherapies where you could see toxicity right away and immunotherapies where toxicity, like in the examples that you gave, may not be observable for some time. Absolutely. So let me respond to both of those things, Steve. First of all, if you are in the room, you know, Rick Pastor, he was not hedging, okay, about this. He was not hinting. He was sort of saying, if you have not heard the bell, listen to what we said about PI3 kinases, you are tone deaf. He said the same thing in several different ways. He said, we will be having frank conversations with sponsors on this. So yeah, you're absolutely right. This is not something he's like, yeah, one day we might like to do. This is for reals, people. And the other thing is you're absolutely right. The reason this is coming up now is is in the background, is in the context of different kinds of therapies that are, you know, it's not the chemotherapy paradigm all the time now where toxicity is a sort of given. Um, the toxicities come in a different time frame and the therapeutic window is quite different with immunotherapies. And what they said is what's changed in the past year and a half is that we're hearing from patients that the toxicities is becoming an issue and that they are on the drugs for longer as well than maybe in the past as drugs have gotten better. So you're absolutely right that the context of drug development, the shift to immunotherapies from highly toxic chemotherapies as part of what's behind this, but they want sponsors, you know, you can't be using archaic methods or methods that were appropriate for a previous paradigm of drug development for these new agents. So the other thing I'm sure you must have asked him about is the whole issue of China only data and uh, the need for multi-regional trials. It seems to me that's another one where anybody who that, that ha- kind of hasn't gotten the message yet um, hasn't been paying attention. Well, you said it, Steve. You know, um, are there any more ways that Rick Pazda needs to say we want multi-regional clinical trials? So there were a couple of questions that were write-in questions. Obviously, they had talked about this, the importance of representing the U.S. population for drugs that will be approved in the U.S. We had talked about that. We had questions still asking tell me what you think about single country trials and what needs to be bridged them. If you have a trial in Asia, what percentage needs to be Caucasian? And his answer was, well, actually, he looked at me and he said, do you know what I'm going to answer to this question? (laughs) Which, of course, I did. And he said, loud and clear, FDA wants to see multi-regional clinical trials. So I think if he has to create airplanes, with big banners on them, whatever it is. I don't know how he has to get the message across, but every forum that he's in and that he speaks at, that will be loud and clear. So the other thing last week, I predicted that he was going to talk about Project Orbis. Was I right? Not only, Steve, did he talk about Project Orbis, but he mentioned that last week you said that he would do that. So, you know, he said that you had said Rick Pazza wouldn't leave the stage without talking about Project Orbis, and he did. Basically, what Project Orbis is, as I understand it, is an effort to do simultaneous reviews of cancer drugs by regulatory agencies around the world. So every agency has its own laws, it has its own regulations, so they're not harmonizing necessarily the results of the reviews, but they're all working together and sharing sharing information and conducting the reviews at the same time, so that if something is going to be approved, 
if at all possible, it gets approved at the same time all over the world. So you don't have a situation where patients in one country have access and patients in another country with a highly developed regulatory agency don't have access because of the regulatory situation. There may be other situations, commercial situations, reimbursement situations that, um, that limit access in other countries, but FDA and Dr. Pazder are doing what they can to ensure that regulatory reviews are not the reason why you have disparate timing of access to important cancer drugs around the world. That's right. And, you know, one emphasis also is to make it easier for sponsors who, you know, should reduce the burden on them for how much they have to do and whether they can do it in parallel or series. And the other thing, just to clarify, Steve, is it's really not global yet. There are a number of countries that have signed up for Project Orbis are involved in it. But I think we're still some ways from the idea of sort of global approvals at the same time. Staying with FDA, Steve, you wrote an editor's commentary last week in which you called out the agency's advisory committee meetings for being dysfunctional and in turn eroding confidence in regulatory decision. What's gone wrong? I say that there's three wrongs, right? The wrong people are on the committees, the meetings are held at the wrong times, and the committees are asked the wrong questions. Other than that, they're great. (laughs) You know, I, I wrote a rather lengthy commentary explaining what I think should be done to fix those problems things that FDA could do without legislation. And I wrote a separate commentary on one of my favorite ideas, which is the idea of creating collaborative communities that work on solving the kind of issues where FDA needs external scientific, medical, and patient advice. It's a longer thing to get into than we can do on this podcast, I think. But fortunately, both of the commentaries are free. They're open access. They're on our website, biocentury.com, non-subscribers have to fill out a one-time online registration form. But other than that, access is free. And I hope people will read them and shoot me notes if they come up with ideas, thoughts about about what I said. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. Definitely check those out. And and definitely, uh, this is something that we're going to be following. If you're in industry, you have ideas on this, as Steve said, reach out to Steve. He will keep his suggestion box open. Let's turn back to the clinic. Selena, we now have the anticipated next cut of data for Biogen's Tofersen program. It missed the primary endpoint in ALS late last year. What do the new data show? Well, overall, they're encouraging. They show at 12 months, there is a separation between the original treatment group and the control. The complication, of course, is that at the six-month Mark, when they unblinded it and it became an open label study, everybody in the placebo arm had transferred, switched over to treatment. So there's you know limited conclusions you can make there. Biogen maybe did a little bit of a Jedi mind trick with its press release. It wanted to just keep reiterating this phrase that what they learned is that early initiation of therapy is better, calling the original treatment group the early start group and those that were on placebo the late start group. But of course, the design doesn't really allow for that conclusion because there is another big difference between the groups, right? One was treated for an entire year, the other was treated for six months. And it also, there's baked into that statement an assumption that it works. Certainly at the six month mark, it hadn't worked. So that might argue that there is some small effect of this drug. There might be a real effect there, but it's 
modest enough that you can't see it after six months. You have to go out a year. So it's slowing decline some, some amount, maybe. The way to really test that, of course, will be a trial designed accordingly. So are we looking at another aducanumab situation? We've got problematic data on uh, neurodegenerative disease from Biogen, and there's a question of whether they're going to do the hard thing, which would be to do a new trial and actually find out the answer, or are they going to press forward and suggest that this the need is so dire here that they should get approval based on enigmatic data again? That's the big question. Yeah. We cannot let the Jedi mind trick thing go, Selena. <laughs> so yeah. are they going to rely on extra forces? Yeah, are they going to be relying on standard drug development to do this? Or, um, you know, let's go back to Steve's question. I, I had to flag that one. Yeah, I, I was banned for making Star Wars references. Thanks for getting that in. Yeah, I mean, you would think right now in the aftermath of Added Helm and all the blowback that um, they would not be trying to make any kind of argument that could possibly be seen as um, splitting the data too much, um, slightly shady. I don't think it's said, but I would venture to guess if it can press forward with this data, it will. Now, you have to remember the other side of this is patients are demanding quite loudly access to therapies, and they are willing to take the tiniest amount of efficacy, whatever it is, they don't care. They're like, just give us the drugs. Well, well, there is an obvious way to square the circle here, which would be to create an expanded access protocol that would allow ALS patients who feel that they need to have access to this therapy, access to it now without making them wait until a definitive clinical trial is completed and for Biogen separately to do the definitive trial that, that everybody needs to understand whether this drug works and um, to characterize its efficacy when it should be given and what people should expect from it. Yeah, and I, I do want to emphasize that this is a very, very different disease than Alzheimer's disease. The patient population is desperate because they have nothing, which is also true in Alzheimer's, but the course of this disease is very fast. So really, from the tragic news is that for anybody with the disease right now, anything that goes through standard drug development is probably not relevant for them. So expanded access is absolutely should be on the table, Steve. I completely agree. But, you know, just to clarify that, it is not really apples to apples to talk about what Biogen would do in this program versus um, the Alzheimer's one. That's right. And as to the fast course of this disease, you know, these data certainly suggest there is some kind of path forward for this drug but it's not going to be a game changer for these patients if they have to wait a year to differentiate from placebo. All the while, they're declining across their functional scores. You know, It could be something to add to the treatment armamentarium, but it doesn't transform this disease from 100% fatal to manageable or, or anything like that. And we just saw an FDA move on Amelix's application. What, what was that? Story? So they, uh, they pushed back the Padufa date to September. The markets interpret that as good news. The value of the stock went up. It's certainly not the worst news. We don't know what it means. There's new clinical data and FDA said it's going to take them longer to evaluate it. That's right. And just for context, they, they got a little stock bump that day, but their stock is still way down from before you know, the advisory committee meeting. I think that's the definition of a biotech mm -hmm. these days, Selena, I'm, I'm sad to say. Um, Amelix does have an application pending in Canada. 
We could get a decision very soon on that. So we'll be looking out for that. And, and just looping back to Biogen, we did ask them what their plans were for Topherson, and they simply said the data reinforce the company's belief that there's a path forward. We're talking to FDA. And uh, so we'll just have to wait and see what is next for that program. All of these stories are up on biocentury.com. There was a lot to talk about this week. We didn't even get to M&A. We're starting to see some M&A heat back up. You'll find our colleague Paul Bonanos's look at Bristol Myers $4 billion turning point takeout. That's the year's second largest acquisition. And Paul also wrote about the latest deal between Regeneron and Sanofi. So check out biocentury.com for those. And we also didn't get a chance to mention the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, which we will get to later because they're going to be having a big meeting on June 14th and 15th at which they're going to be considering whether the FTC should adopt a whole new way of thinking about biopharma M&A and its potential effects on competition. If they move forward with some of the things that they've been talking about, it could have enormous impacts on the biopharma ecosystem. Take them while you're down, right? Katie Porter fans, get your pom-poms ready. All righty. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for our podcasts, as well as the BioCentury show. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We will catch you next week. Stephen Hansen will be here hosting as I will hopefully be somewhere in Southern California relaxing.